Hello and welcome back to another edition of Yoga After Dark. Today I have Malitza Paranosic and she is a composer and a multimedia artist and a general Michael fan. And that is Michael, yours truly, her teacher. And this should prove to be a pretty interesting episode of our little podcast because Melitza requested it. Um, and the reason she requested it is because she's been listening to the podcast and she has some questions that she needs answered. So I actually have no idea what is about to transpire, but here we are in hot, hot summer of New York City. We're both kind of sweating a little bit at the moment um, on, our, on our various sides of the Zoom call. And here we go. Melitza, tell me what's up. Hi, Michael, and thank you so much for letting me reverse this, this scenario around your podcast. And uh, <laughs> it's kind of funny because, like, I would usually be, I mean, I worked on it, so I'm a little better, but I would be usually sh too shy to kind of speak in front of the people, unless it's super public, then it's okay. Like, <laughs> I can perform in front of, like, 300 people, but talking amongst a group of 20 is much harder, so... This, this works for me because it's a performance. <laughs> Very good. Excellent. Um, awesome. So I have a bunch of questions, and um, I'm going to start with a group of questions that relate to all the other stuff and all the good stuff and all the non-asana yoga stuff that I have for the longest time What's the word? I wasn't afraid to enter it. I resisted it for some reason. Okay. So for a very long time, and that goes, you know, back before I knew you, before I met, met you, before I moved to New York even. Like, I, there was a certain attraction towards yoga, but I didn't know what it was. And I was really, I thought I was really only interested in the physical stuff. And, um, and then once I've stayed with it for a little while... I've realized that, wait, if I'm spending so much time doing this and I'm only doing, doing it half-assed, basically, because I'm only addressing one aspect of it, why don't I open up for more? So to that came a little chanting in the beginning and the ending, and that was enough for a long time. <laughs> it was totally enough. Because the idea of speaking words that I don't truly understand in a voice that just mimics the sound reminds me of me growing up in Serbia and learning all the pop songs <laughs> by imitating wow. them and being <laughs> extremely funny, which when you're a kid is fine, but when you're a 50-year-old woman, is not that interesting. <laughs> Things change, right? Stupid. So basically what I'm saying is, in your first, second, third podcast, I forget which one it was, you gave a very clear, specific explanation and translation of both the chants themselves as well as the purpose they served. And so I'm realizing that, you know, if I get a scientific and reasonable explanation, then I'm more likely to do it. And, you know, the bit of starting, by in, starting with a chant by a way of us stepping out of the outside world into our practice and then going back out of it the same way with a different uh, chant, that helped, that not only that, that it made sense, but it actually helped the very first day when I did it with that idea in mind. So now what I want to know, Michael, what can you tell me about all the rest of the chanting that you guys do that I kind of don't want to learn, and I do, and I don't, like, can, what can you offer me? <laughs> so, um, okay, so the episode you're talking about is episode two which is, you know, the first two episodes of the podcast, for those who haven't listened to them, are just uh, general rants by me. It's before I started interviewing anyone. And uh, so the second episode is all about the uh, opening chant and the closing chant that we use in the Ashtanga tradition. And they are, I think, very important because they set aside time and they set aside space, as I discussed. Um, if you you want a special time and space for your yoga practice. And so you have to begin it in some way and you have to end it in some way. And in the Ashtanga lineage, we have specific ways of beginning and ending it. And so, you know, why not go with that? Um, 
Now the other chanting, and, and this is something that is particular um, really to what shala you're attending and who your teacher is. Because some teachers like doing it, some teachers don't like doing it, some teachers have the experience of do, to do it, some teachers don't. Um, personally, I have a, a decent amount of experience with the Yoga Sutras. And so what I typically teach to the students is, is the chanting of the Yoga Sutras, of Patanjali. <clears throat> and they learn it in the traditional method, which is called Shruti Parampara. Shruti means something that is heard, and Parampara is something that is passed down uh, from teacher directly to student over time. And so they learn the, the chants bit by bit from me over time, and then eventually we go over what they mean. And honestly, we go over what they mean in a relatively glossy fashion, um, because it's not like I'm teaching them a whole course on philosophy or something. And frankly, I don't know enough to go like super, super in depth into it anyway. Um, and usually I allow them to kind of lead me in the directions that they are most curious about. So if we go over a couple of the sutras and they don't seem to have a reaction to it or are very interested in that particular thing, I just let it be. Um, sometimes I say something, a translation of a sutra, and I'm very surprised that people are like, oh, well, this means, okay, let me, you know, we want to talk about this. And then I'm like, oh, okay, I guess we'll be talking about that for a while. I, I never thought that was actually interesting, but I guess, you know, you're a different person, so that's great. Um, the huge benefit to this particular method of learning, the Shruti Parampara, is that it takes an enormous amount of focus. And in our Ashtanga practice, in our actual asanas and pranayama and drishti, we are trying to build focus. We're trying to build the skill of focusing our mind on a single place. The chanting is, I would say, even more difficult because there's less physicalness to hold on to. If you're doing your asanas, you have the muscles, you have the bones, you have how everything feels, the stretching feeling, the aching feelings, the good feelings. You also have the breathing, you also have where you're looking, the drishti, all of that. That's a lot of stuff for the mind to attach itself to and also entertain itself with. And so it's, a, it's what we would call a gross practice. Gross as in gross versus subtle. Not gross versus beautiful. Not gross like, oh, but just gross <laughs> as in like really physical, you know? <laughs> and, and actually the asana practice honestly is a little gross too. I mean, come on, like, especially Heavy. now that we're in summer, you know, and I'm just kind of like dripping every time I do a sun salutation. <laughs> um, the chanting practice is a bit more subtle because you take most of the body out of it. The only thing you're doing really with the chanting practice is using your sense of hearing, your sense of sight a bit because you want to watch the other person's lips when they are chanting, um, and a little bit of your sense of touch uh, because you can feel the vibration in your throat. But that sense of touch in your throat is completely different than feeling a sensation of you know, a back bend or a forward bend or something like that. You know, it's a much smaller thing. <clears throat> and so there is less for the mind to entertain itself with, which means it's much easier for the mind to wander away and think about other things, which are usually lunch, or at least for me, lunch tends to be the thing that gets thought about. So the students that elect to do this chanting practice, I think, um, I think it's highly beneficial for them simply because they have to engage in yet another deeper concentrative process. Um, and so that's what I personally think is incredibly value about, valuable about it. There is, is there valuable information in the Yoga Sutras? Yes, incredibly valuable. 
But I actually think the teaching of it in the Shruti Parampara method is more valuable than me actually going through and talking about what they mean, frankly. It's, uh, it's the 99% practice versus the 1% theory thing. Huh. <clears throat> awesome. I'm, I'm, I'm liking this answer a lot. Now, can we talk more about it? So, yeah. um, I assume that when you mean you mind, your mind has less things to entertain itself with, to entertain itself with, so therefore easier to wander off. That happens once you familiarize yourself with what you're chanting enough so that your mind can actually not freak out about like what comes next and what word is next and what not, right? Right. It's both process and product, remember. Yoga is always process and product. So all the little steps you take to get to the yoga also right. count as the yoga. Right. No, I get that. I think I get that. But yeah, you're not really wondering. My mind will not be wandering around if I, before I have memorized it. The memorization process keep it, keeps it busy. Yes. And then it's going to get start wandering off when, when it's comfortable with it. Yes, this is true. That makes sense. It's the same, um, I mean, it's the same reason why uh, you keep getting harder and harder asanas as time goes by. It kind of is. It, it kind of is. Now, now I get it a little bit more. Um, to this, I would like to add a discussion on meditation and other types of stillness. <laughs> so I'm totally, uh, you know, I warned you, some of the questions will be stupid, but I couldn't care less if, if, if they come out as such. And some of them will be some, maybe I know answers to them to some extent, but I, I like your light on them, or your <laughs> okay. angle on them. But uh, similarly to how I was, uh, for the most part, attracted to the physical part of yoga, or I thought I was, I kind of couldn't stand standing, staying still after practice for even five minutes or even three minutes. I just, all I wanted was to jump and start moving again. Mm. Um, but once I forced myself to keep quiet for at least 15 minutes a day for about a month and a half every day, I started feeling benefits from it. Now, I know technical differences be, be, between all these different types of being more in, being less moving, being more still, being more, in, be, being more I guess still, in both, both with my mind and the body. But um, I'm kind of sometimes grouping, like, grouping things together that are not the same thing. So I lie down after practice for 15 minutes, and I, I don't really call that meditation, but let's for the... For the sake of whatever terminology labeling um, so meditation shavasana which also I assume is not the right term for what we do at the end of Ashtanga because we're not dying correct we're not stopping the breathing and then there's pranayama which I feel like would be I, I also resent it because it seems super boring but I assume it's beneficial as well <laughs> and then and then even a little bit of like yin yoga or yoga nidra and all of these things, like do you, if you start exploring them, do you pick one and stick with it? Do you, can you combine them? Does it really not matter that much? Give me a little bit more of a guidance on my way through, through this area. Okay, here's the thing that I think is going to be important. Meditation. If, we, if we're talking about it in, as the term sayama, as the term sayama. Sayama is when you have the, the three, dharana, dhyana, and samadhi, the three last limbs of Ashtanga Yoga, when you combine them together and smoosh them up, you get sayama, okay? And that we can kind of say is meditation, if you will. That is not something that you can force. <clears throat> that is not something that you can make happen. Um, it only happens because you set up the correct parameters for it to happen. It's a lot of times described as growing a plant. 
So just because you put the seed into the soil and you water it and you put it in the sunlight, that does not mean that you made the plant grow. You didn't. The plant did that all by itself. You just set up good parameters for it so it could happen. It's the same thing with meditation. So all of these other things that you've listed, doing some yin yoga, doing some yoga nidra. Yoga nidra is interesting because it's, it's a visualization practice. Um, and I personally think it has a lot more to do actually with pratyahara, the fifth limb of Ashtanga yoga, than it does to do with the last three. Um, and of course, pranayama and asana, and uh, even your resting at the end of practice, we just call it rest, because that's what it is. Uh, the practice is over. We're not doing any asanas anymore. So we're just lying down and resting. Um, all of those things are, um, they, they're tools, or they are strategies, or they are ingredients that you're putting together, that you're using to set up the correct parameters for meditation. In order to meditate, your mind has to naturally focus itself and be calm. Most of us, and I'm going to include myself here, do not have naturally focused and calm minds. I'm, you know, mind is very distracted. Mind is running around all over the place. So if there is going to be some hope of the um, flower of meditation blooming, then I have to get my mind habitually to a calm and focused place. And all the tools that we've now both mentioned are tools in that direction and people Correct. throw in a term meditation everywhere just because they do that's people people throw in the term meditation because the english language is very poor when talking about states of mind okay because i've i've seen like i'm doing that in an in an effort i'm i'm doing these stillness practices in an effort to enjoy some type of benefits from them because i've seen that they actually do that but um but i have seen people mentioning, calling yoga nidra meditation. I've seen, heard people calling pranayama meditation and I've seen, heard people calling different things, different things. So this was- Yeah, the, the word <laughs> meditation in English is a very broad term. Got it. Okay. Whereas the word dharana in Sanskrit, which means to bind your mind to one point, means a specific thing. The word dhyana also means a specific thing. The word samadhi means a specific thing. And then there's seven different levels of samadhi that all mean specific things. And in English, we just say, well, meditation. I see. <laughs> and, so, and so we do get mixed up a lot when talking about it because we just don't have enough vocabulary to describe it. So instead of saying meditation, we'll now say uh, absorption or cognitive absorption, or deep concentration, or super deep concentration, or stillness, or calmness, or reduction of agitation, or we, we start to make up terms. Um, I like to talk about it uh, with the term love, because love is also a, a really hard thing to express in the English language, because we have very few words for it. Um, and so we usually have to use extra describers, like uh, parental love, uh -huh. divine love, uh -huh. etc. And um, I mean, you grew up in Serbia, yes? So yeah. you were growing up with a different language. But in English, when you're in grade school, and you first uh, start to be interested in other people in a romantic way, you would tell your friend, oh, I like this person. And then your friend might respond, well, you like them, but do you like, like them? And then your other friend might respond, well, do you like, like, like them? 
you know, and it, because we just don't have other terms for it. We're trying to get to this term love, but we have so few steps between like and love that we just start to make stuff up and it becomes very hard to talk about. Cool. That's a cool analogy. Um, great. Thank you for that. I want to move on to con continuity and consistency explorations. Continuity so, and consistency? Yeah. I'm, okay. uh, and I'll, I'll give you sub-questions. Ten years uninterrupted. And it, you know, it may be different for different people, and it is. But it just makes me think. Um, what is an interruption? Is it three days? Is it five months? And what if the interruption is caused by something you cannot control, like surgeries and recoveries from surgery? And, um, and personally, I felt like in the last two years I had to make, or in the last three years maybe, I had to interrupt it for a substantial amount of time for those... Uh, for health reasons, but I didn't feel like I interrupted my relationship with it, and I kept following you guys, and I kept watching videos, or thinking, or meditating, watch me doing this, meditating, uh, <laughs> and just, at home, she's just kind of like, <laughs> keep wanting it, yeah, exactly, keep <laughs> wanting to be, to still be a part of it, even if I physically wasn't doing as much, so tell, yeah, tell me about consistency, and what it means in these kind of parameters and situations when it happens outside of our control. So by way of introduction into what you are saying, um, so I like to tell a story that my teacher liked to tell me, which was uh, students of Patabi Joyce's asking him what uh, a long time without interruption means. And this comes out of Yoga Sutra, um, the 14th Sutra of the first chapter, I believe. Um, so basically, in order for your practice to be firmly established, you have to do it for a long time without interruption, and it must be done in service to the truth. And so Patavi Joyce's students asked him what a long time meant, and he said, many lifetimes. And then his Western students didn't like that. And they said, well, Guruji, we don't believe in reincarnation. And so we only have one lifetime. So what about for us? And then he said, well, you have to practice your entire life. And then they didn't like that either. So they said, well, Guruji, you know, I have other things to do in my life. I can't just like come back to India over and over and over again. I also want to buy a summer home in Florida and I want to have a career and I want to have kids and I want to do this and I want to do that. You know, Westerners, we always want to do things. We always get out and do things. And so eventually they negotiated with him and the negotiation went down to 10 years and he would not budge below 10 years. So if you want to have a firmly established practice, it must be done for 10 years without interruption. What does a firmly established practice mean? It means that if something happens to you beyond your control, like a car crash, like cancer, like a parent dying, like uh, having children, like um, losing your job, any of these things. Um, if something like that happens to you, then that forces taking a break from the practice. Your mind will be so habitually attuned to doing the practice that when break time is over, you will be inexorably drawn back to the practice as if you don't have control over it. So, I think that the importance of having a teacher creeps up here in a big way. Because the practice has to be decided on between you, the practitioner, and hopefully your intelligent and relatively, ob relatively objective teacher. Because if I'm teaching a 50-year-old woman who has this, that, and the other thing, 
I cannot expect the same thing from her as the 23-year-old dude that walks into my shala, right? And so the practice itself can look very different from person to person. And that includes what consistency means. Maybe consistency for one person is three times a week, whereas consistency for another person is six times a week, right? So, but that has to be decided on by you and some sort of objective viewer because you deciding on it yourself leaves a lot of room for um, lying to yourself, honestly. And so, yeah, if you... Practicing uh, <laughs> for a long time. Yeah. And, and, you know, that's one of the things that, that lineage is so good about is it it does force us to look at it you know in the ashtanga system we are theoretically traditionally we practice six days a week unless there's a new moon or a full moon in which case it's five days yeah that is the traditional practice schedule of the ashtanga yoga lineage um and so that by saying that by having that lineage we're given parameters to work within. And then from that, you and your teacher can say, well, I know that the traditional schedule is six days a week. However, I have this consideration, this consideration, this consideration, whatever they may be. And they can be very important considerations. Let's take, you know, the example of a single mother of three you know, obviously that woman is going to be an incredibly busy person and is probably not going to have the time to devote to six days a week of an hour and a half to two hours a morning. So maybe that particular person will practice three days a week. And maybe that particular person will only practice 30 minutes each time. But it's the consistency of what is done that is important. And I think it's actually more important than what is actually being done. Frankly, it's, you know, quality versus quantity. I see. So if we're talking about 10 years as our benchmark, right? Because that's what we could negotiate the old Indian man down to. Then probably within 10 years, there's going to be some upsets in your life. A decade, you know, there's, there's a lot of room for change. And so as long as when there is change, you are still present with a teacher and figuring out how practice can still continue, I think that totally counts. I mean, I've had students that have, you know, had injury for various reasons, and they... I'm thinking of one person in particularly in particular he used to come to the shala and lie down for half an hour and do the asanas in his mind that was his practice but then you think to yourself part of that practice part of that consistency is still waking up which he could still do every day still getting himself to a particular place which he could do every day being there for a certain amount of time, which he could do every day. All those things were within his power, you know, just not the actual physical asanas at that time. But he's still building the consistency, building the focus of mind over and over and over and over again. Good stuff. Yep. Um, so... This is a recent experience for me, so I, wanna, I want to see if it's a common experience. Um, does yoga make you more sensitive? <laughs> sensitive to, I mean, not, as, not necessarily as at odds with make, also making you stronger emotionally, but... I feel like there is a certain sensitivity um, that manifests in really being hurt more easily, 
being more, um, um, maybe agitated, not so much, but um, really more, 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 t um, just, just hurt more easily. I feel like I cry easier. I feel like I cry for other people's pains easier. I feel like I cry for all sorts of things, or not necessarily cry full on, although that is happening also. And it's recent, and it, maybe it's Mr. COVID, which we talked about a little bit earlier. <laughs> but strangely, I feel like you know, as one part of me grows stronger, there's also a big part of me that, that grows really kind of sensitive and needs more protection even. And whether that's yoga related or something else related, I can't tell. But it's been interesting, so I want to hear if, if you can shed some light on it. Part of the process of yoga is losing individuation. Individuation is ego. Yeah? So part of the process of yoga is severing the ego. The less you cling to your own I amness, the more you are going to understand how deeply connected you are to everyone else. And so that opens you up to a world of hurt because you are no longer just, you know, getting hurt yourself whenever you see anyone else being hurt, whenever you see anyone else in pain, you understand that that is a reflection of your own pain or deeply connected, enmeshed with your own pain. This is hard, but it is a very good thing. I don't mind it. I really don't. It, it gives me a crazy, weird type of pleasure of some sort, not pleasure necessarily, but it feels right. Comfort. I just, I'm a little confused by it, so. Yeah, it I'm sure that yeah, I'm sure that there'll be an episode that I either, I didn't watch all of them, I didn't listen to all of them, I'm up to, I don't know, maybe number eight or nine, but I'm sure that there will be something that, uh, that will, you know, maybe you already shared it is basically what I'm saying, but uh, it's just interesting. Yeah, it, it, it is a very interesting phenomenon. And, you know, it has, to, it's, it's a scary thing, honestly. Um, because losing your own self, losing your self, self of I am, or that, that starting to weaken, um, it's like dying a little bit. Um, and this is the this is the klesha, the, the obstacle of abhinivesha. Abhinivesha is the last of the kleshas. It means fear, specifically fear of death. And I don't think it really is fear of the big death, fear of the like, you know, your life actually ending. I think it's fear of all the little deaths that are happening all the time. You know. As you change, every change you undergo is like going through a little, a little death. If you move to a new city, your life in, that, in the old city, it's, it's as if you've died in a way, you know. Um, if you move to a new career, it's like your old career, it's as if you've expired. Yeah. Right? And maybe more um, of those things are happening all at the same time then. Yeah, and many of those things are happening all at the same time right now. So it's, it's quite a lot. And it's happening to a lot of people. So it's, it's very, very intense. And you can see what is happening throughout our country. Um, this is a reaction to that. It's a reaction to that change. And I am hoping that Part of it is that people are going to understand that they really are more connected than they think they are. But that realization is super difficult because it is the exact opposite direction that you and your genetic code have been leading you for millions of years. We have constantly been going outwards. Our mind goes outwards for our entertainment 
and it takes its entertainment by ownership. It says, I own this thing, this is mine. And to reverse course, we have to go inwards for our entertainment, inwards for our bliss. And part of that process is saying, I actually can't own anything. All right, switching gear, gears. <laughs> cheating. Cheating. I want to talk about cheating. If you so, want to cheat, you have to do so intelligently. That's that's that's. So, <laughs> I um I am trying. I mean, I, I I feel like I cheat all the time on different levels. But cheating in room in room with you is one thing. But uh, oftentimes when I'm practicing on my own, I cheat, but in two ways. One is I grab a prop if it's going to make me do that thing that I cannot do mm-hmm. so that I can realize that I can do it and then I re- reduce the use of that whatever prop is. And it has actually, get, it was getting me, it was able to get me to a place where I wanted to be physically. I'm not now talking, not now talking about the whole full big yoga. I'm talking about body. <laughs> <laughs> so I would grab a block and sit on it, and then I was able to bind the first time. And then I would do this or that to help me stay in the headstand until I was safe enough to do it by myself. Is that bad? Or No. no. What you're describing is not bad, and neither is it cheating. What you're describing has a special term, and that special term is vinyasa krama. Krama means step. And vinyasa means to put something in a particular place, okay? So vinyasa krama means a stepwise progression, a very intentional way of getting somewhere. Um, I personally don't see any problem with the use of props if it's done intelligently. What I've seen in my yoga practicing career is that props are often used not intelligently or they're used as an, as an end to their own means. So the prop will always be there. There's never an idea that the prop could possibly, you know, go away. And I personally don't like that. Um, I think if you're going to use something extraneous, since something extraneous is changeable, it's part of physical nature, um, that extraneous thing is eventually going to fail you um, by either not being there because you forgot to bring it or you went to a different yoga studio and they don't have that particular thing or whatever it may be. Um, And so you do want to get rid of using things outside yourself, honestly. Um, and, but that, that, but that's a a process, right? So if, if you're using, you know, if you've had some issue where you need, I mean, you, um, particularly we were using some blocks for your headstand because of the the neck. Yeah. yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. So this is, this is, you know, a while ago, but, um, you know, we were, we were doing that. And so you could still do this headstand and get some relief from your neck as well at the same time. But the idea is not that you will always do your headstand that way. The idea is we're doing this right now because the other way is not an option. And then we're going to have to figure out how to get from point A to point B right? How to get from using all of these extraneous items to help you to no longer having to use them anymore. I think as long as you view it uh, intelligently and critically, mm-hmm. that, that it's totally fine. It's not cheating at all. I think we have a problem when we start throwing blocks at people willy-nilly and just telling everyone in the class, okay, everybody's got to use the block now because the block is just really awesome for everybody. I mean, how does that make any sense? I don't, I don't get it. One beautiful thing about Ashtanga, and I think um, Louise, my teacher Louise Ellis said this in her interview, uh, which I believe was episode eight, um, she said the great thing about Ashtanga was that you were allowed to do what you could do. If you were 
naturally flexible, you could do some flexible stuff. If you were naturally strong, you could do some strong stuff. And we have to work with people with their own, with their own innate strengths, you know, instead of uh, trying to hold people back because not everyone is there. This is the whole point of the Mysore practice. Everybody gets to practice at their own pace. It doesn't matter how fast people go through the asanas. Everyone's going to get stuck eventually anyway. Um, but I shouldn't have to be at the pace of the person next to me because we're different people. Awesome. Not cheating then. Not cheating. No cheating. And uh, tell me about this. Is cheating then spending too much time on a certain asana that's hard for you? Should you just keep not obsessing and just keep it, which results in, like, how do you, how do you make something better if you only give it this little amount of time every day? Uh, so, and how do we avoid the instinct to, like, workshop it every time you get to that point? Right, so that so you, you actually can see the difference a little quicker. So you said the word yourself, right? It's not cheating, it's obsessing. Think. <laughs> <laughs> There's a difference. Um, the way I was taught, you get to try three times. Three seems to be a good number. Um, you get to try three times. Once you've tried three times, you have to say, you know what? There's tomorrow and I'll be back for this tomorrow. Okay, because beyond three times, we start to get into an obsessive mindset. And that is honestly not helpful for our yoga process. Um, it's a bit detrimental, honestly. It causes a great deal of frustration. And yeah. frustration in a, is an agitation. And we are trying to calm the mind down. Yeah. And that is true for self-practice and the practice in the room with you, same, same idea? Same idea. I think it is even more true for self-practice because I do believe that when you you're are self-practicing, <laughs> <laughs> because I do believe that when you're self-practicing and I'm not watching, or your good friend next to you on the mat is not sensing your um, <clears throat> agitation, yeah. that you are more permissive of your obsessions in private. Awesome. <laughs> um, the next question is whole or no whole you're going to be like what mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I have made this mask for you Michael yeah. oh that's beautiful it's a smoke mask with a rainbow unicorn on it ah! and um I'm just debating on whether I should put a straw hall in it, like the ones that I've been making, so that you can actually enjoy your drink outdoors while still being fashionable and safe. Or would you rather have it like this so-called plain? Because nothing about this is plain. I want no hole. Okay. Because I do, I do most of my drinking in my garden, which is a private area, so I don't need to worry about that. <laughs> that was easy. Thank you. On your way to you... <laughs> wonderful it's beautiful <laughs> <laughs> i can't wait for you to have it if you're you know if you're going to be out there and you're going to be wearing masks for the safety of of people there is no reason you shouldn't be able to express yourself through them honestly and also just let people know that you're still willing to have a good time you might be all masked up but you're still a human being with real human feelings and uh fashionable human being and a fashionable human being and you can connect still with other human beings this was this was something that really disturbed me in the beginning of our quarantine is those masks went on and people became nasty like really nasty no one would look you in the eye people treated you as if you were like a plague victim or something um, even though they didn't even know you. Uh, and it was just, and people did like really weird stuff, like looked both ways across the street, saw cars, and then walked out right in front of them because they have a mask on. Yeah, it's really like, weird what it does, yeah. yeah. I think it's the same thing as how internet trolls feel like 
totally cool, you know, being super nasty and mean to people on the internet because they're anonymous. It's like you put the mask on and all of a sudden you're anonymous. Nothing matters anymore. You're it's almost like when you're a little kid and you close your eyes and you think you're invisible, but you, you're yeah. really not. <laughs> exactly. We're all just fooling ourselves. <laughs> yeah, it is interesting. So I think anything you can do to show people like, hey, we're all still humans under these things is really important. You know, so thank you for that. Love it. Uh, awesome. I don't have any other questions other than your four questions that you ask um, at the end. So if you have any questions for me, yeah, now so, is the so time. We can't, we can't do number one because number one is my own ego self-serving question if you want to ask me anything. That, we've done that a little we just, bit. We just, yeah. spent, we just spent a long time inflating my ego, so that's great. Um, so the <laughs> second question is, what do you think is super awesome and the bestest thing about how our society is currently practicing yoga? Oh, I see. So you are asking me those questions. I'm okay, asking good. you those questions now, yes. Um, what is the best thing about the practice today? You know, I don't feel like I have enough history with it to compare it with any other type of practice like if we're talking today as under covid's um influence then then that's different but in general if we go this just a little bit before to pre-covid i don't know how to answer that because um um I really don't have that much experience with other people and other practices other than you. If I mean, I had some flirtations with yoga when I was younger, and a lot of it actually, but it didn't really take me very far and I didn't stick with it. But I was attracted to it for probably all the wrong reasons. But um, once I found you, I think that's the answer. I think from my perspective, and that's all I can talk about, because that's all I know. Mm. What's best about yoga practices today is you, Michael, because <laughs> that's what I'm getting. Yeah. I'm not trying to inflate your ego, which you said you didn't want to do, but it's just, that's basically, I studied at a couple of other studios before you, or before you kind of separated and started your own. Um, and for me, that was, the top of my journey at where I am now. Uh, I'm not liking the Zoom idea of it at all, but there's nothing we can do about it for now. I'm yeah, I I mean, fear that it's, that it's going <laughs> to stay because it's more convenient for a lot of people, which I don't really, when I think yoga, I don't really necessarily think convenience. That's not the first thing that comes to my mind. So I actually enjoyed, you know, that I've been coming every morning taking 45 minute commutes to go to you and back. So that's not terribly convenient, but I made other shifts to be able to do that. So I'm looking forward to whatever live practice we can return to. I'd rather go like live practice with fewer people than Zoom right. conferences of a hundred and thousands <laughs> of people. Um, so... Let me... Translate, let me translate your words, um, if I may, to, uh, to take the, uh, the, the me out of it, to take the Michael out of it. I feel like what you are saying is that you find that the best thing about yoga practice currently is that you can find one place, one teacher to be dedicated to and you can have that relationship with that person and whatever they are offering, or whatever method they are offering. Um, that way it doesn't have to be me. Cause you know, I could die tomorrow. Um, and uh, then you'd be SOL. Right, <laughs> I was, yeah, I was, I guess I was, I was just answering it purely from my own perspective. So therefore you, but yes, that is definitely a more, appropriate and more, a little bit more general answer than I yeah. <laughs> So tell me, what do you think is most lacking about how we're practicing yoga? Um, I 
I think that there is a strong um, business and kind of um, business side of yoga and also like the um, cultness of yoga that makes you feel like it's a little intimidating. And I'm not talking only Ashtanga, I'm talking about various different little schools or big schools and rules and, and you know, qualification rules and all sorts of things. And I feel like there's a lot of competitiveness and there is a lot of also show-offness in variable, to variable degrees, speaking, uh, depending on who we're talking about. And I feel like a lot of it kind of like takes you away from yoga rather than closer to it. I know that I've tried third way of cheating, like when I wasn't able to come to your sessions or, or was not motivated enough to go on my own, so I would like zoom into it, like a, a look up a class or, 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 or two. And there's a little bit of, it feels like competitive. Mm -hmm. It feels like a sport. It feels like uh, a competition and it feels like, you know, intimidating. It feels like not everybody can be part of it. Yeah, I get you there. I think it's possible, maybe even probable, that um, our good friend, Mr. COVID, may take care of that, some of that issue for us. I agree with you there. <laughs> so where do you see all this leading in 10, 20, 30 years? What's the future of yoga, Milica? Tell me. Um, I mean, it's been around for how long? A bit. Yeah, so <laughs> it will survive. It will survive. And I feel like the, um, let's call those people who are more into treating it like a sport or competitive sport. Let's talk them, let's, let's name them group A, for example. I feel like the group A will have a career. They'll have their time. But it will eventually become something else. It will probably have its own term and it will have its own following, and it will be even more different than what yoga is in a while, and it will survive, but it will not be yoga. Mm -hmm. And then yoga, having been around for a bit, will find its way to stay true and to, to be manifested and given to people and taken by people and enjoyed by people in a more natural way. But exactly what that would look like, I can't tell. It does have a very, the yoga does have a very interesting way of protecting itself throughout the millennia. Most definitely. Yeah. Yoga will be fine. Yeah, that's right. Anybody who's been worried, don't worry. Yoga will be just fine. <laughs> okay, Melitza, good to talk to you. Okay, my darling, thank you. Thanks Thank for you allowing this little deviation to your program. It was my pleasure. It's very nice. <laughs> and I will see you tomorrow. Very good.